Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. begin by getting you to to think and share again with the person next to you somebody who you would say is a great example of what it is to be a Christian. So who's just front of mind, first name that you think of, this person's a great example of a Christian. Just give the name, don't even explain why, just say who it is. I want you to think about what was it that made you choose the person that you chose? What was it about that person that made them come to mind as a great example of a Christian? I'm going to guess, and I might be wrong, but I'm going to guess it was something about the way they lived their life. I'm going to guess it wasn't just that they said, I believe in Jesus, but they actually put it into practice. It, It made a difference in how they lived. I remember the person who led me to Jesus, which was in my first year of university, halls of residence, one of my flatmates, and the guy was a Christian, and I had a lot of chats with him, and they were interesting, but honestly, they didn't really change me from not believing in God to believing in God until I'd seen the way he lived, and he handled the situations before him pretty differently to how I handled situations, and how everyone else handled situations. There was something distinctive in his life. And that actually moved me. That made me say, okay, maybe this is the real deal. So this is such an obvious point I'm making. In fact, it's so obvious. Forgive me for saying this. But Christianity, it needs to be lived out. It can't just be a head thing. It needs to be lived out in our lives. And We've been in this series in Ephesians over the last few weeks, and so far we've learned a lot about what it is to be a Christian. We've learned about God's grace and how we're saved by grace, not by works. We've heard about the spiritual blessings that we have. We've heard about the power we have through the Holy Spirit in our lives. We've learned about what God's done, bringing us together as one people. But in the context of that, we're now moving on to, because of all this, there's a way to live our lives. And it uses words like put off and put on. So think about clothing, right? You'd put some clothing off and some clothing on. Some things would be appropriate to wear in certain situations. Some things wouldn't. Today, if you turned up with a massive coat on, someone would say, what are you doing wearing a coat on a day like this? Put the coat off. It doesn't fit. It doesn't go with your new circumstances because you're in a hot day but maybe put on a sun hat maybe that's an appropriate thing to put on if you were a soldier and you turned up wearing a clown hat it would be inappropriate put it off and put on your uniform and so as followers of Jesus there are things that we're told to put off and things that we're told to put on or other ways it says is don't walk this way walk this way so Real simple, being a Christian means living in quite a distinctive way. I'm going to talk about that today, which means if you're here and you're not a Christian, then as we're talking about all the put-offs and put-ons, 
This isn't directly talking to you. So the message for you, if you're not a Christian, is, hey, Jesus is amazing. You can have eternal life and forgiveness of sins through him. And then treat the rest of this as a bit of a window into what it would be to be a Christian. So look in and see, ah, okay, that's what the Christian life would look like. But this really is something for those who are following Jesus. Now, we're going to be in the back half of chapter four and the front half of chapter five. And I've given to Andy a bunch of uh, handouts and pens that are just going to help us a bit, which he's going to send around. Because what we'll see in this passage, just so many things. He's talking about loads of stuff to put off. He's talking about loads of stuff to put on. And so I thought it'd be good as I read the passage to get you trying to spot what they are. What are the things that as Christians we should put off? So I put a little box on there saying, put this stuff off. And what are the things to put on? And just as I read it, if you spot something, maybe just make a note of it on there. And then if you want to, I've just put another little space. What are the reasons for doing this? So I'm going to read it in a minute. I'll make sure uh, they've got around to everybody first. And the passage that we're in will be, Chapter 4, verse 25, going through to chapter 5, verse 8. It's quite long. It could have been even longer, but I've skipped a bit at the start and the end to get to the meat of what we're talking about. So maybe you can read around it at home if you'd like to. Right, here we go. Romans, sorry, Romans, Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you... Speak the truth with his neighbour. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labour, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another, 
as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There we go, there's a lot going on, isn't there? Many things. I guess your boxes are quite full. And I was just thinking what I wanted to do with my time this morning. I realised there was so much that I wanted to speak about and go into and had things to say about. And I, I thought if I do that, Andy's going to kill me because we're going to be here all day uh, and we're never going to get out here. I want to stick to the time that we've got. So I thought either we've got a choice. We can either very superficially go through everything and not say a lot about them or we can go into a few things in a bit more depth. And I thought, let's do the second one. And that's why I got you noting down the stuff, just so you've had that moment of looking at what's going on as a whole in the passage. And maybe the Holy Spirit, as you wrote some stuff down, you just felt that nudge of uh, God saying to you, actually, this is a thing for you. Be thinking about this, be putting this thing off, be putting this thing on. And if there are things that aren't the ones we're going to go into in depth that challenged you in that way, then receive that challenge from the Holy Spirit and think about these things more and try and apply them in your life. But what I've done is I've chosen off this whole list three of the things to talk about and hopefully the same thought process and logic would apply to all the others as well. I've picked the ones that I think just are the real big ones in our day that might apply to a lot of people. So uh, I've picked the issue of truthfulness the issue of anger and the issue of sexual purity are what we're going to talk about a bit this morning. And before we get too much into them, I just want you to bear in mind three things that we have. Because if you remember these three things, it will help us. Number one is that we have grace. So we're talking about what we do in our life, but remember it's not on the basis of what we do in our life whether or not God loves us. We already have acceptance and our standing before God is because of Jesus' blood shed for us. So we have 
grace. There is no condemnation, even if some of the put-on stuff hasn't been properly put on and the put-off stuff hasn't been fully put off. We have grace. Secondly, we have help. God's given us the Holy Spirit. So we're not trying to get better, do more by our own strength, but the power of the Holy Spirit is at work to help us live out the new life. And thirdly, we have a call to be distinctive. And often we don't talk about this enough. I remember when Mike Pilavachi was with us a few years ago. He made the point that God's love language is obedience. I love that little way of phrasing it. But God loves obedience. I think sometimes we underplay that as Christians there's a call to a distinctive life of following God. So let's remember those three things. We have grace, we have help, and we have a call. Let's start on truthfulness then. So Tim mentioned it in the video that uh, in the area he was talking about, there's so many lies, there's so many falsehoods, truth is contested. I think that's actually the case here as well. It's the case all over the world. So much so that we talk about being post-truth. Anyone heard that phrase? It's like, yeah, we've done with the truth. The truth is for the past. But when we've moved beyond the truth, now we have alternative facts. Everyone has their, their set of things that back up what they want to say. And what's real gets squeezed out. I watched a TED talk by Pamela Mayer, who, according to the Reader's Digest, is America's best-known expert on lying. Now, when it says an expert on lying, I think she's studied it and knows a lot about it. I don't think it's saying she's really good at it. That's not what it means to be an expert in lying. But in this TED talk, she shared some statistics from her research. And she said, on average, we're lied to be somewhere between 10 and 200 times every day. So that would include an in-person, in-your-face lie. It might include advertising that you see, things that you read and consume. But in total, between 10 and 200 times a day. And here's a scary one. Uh, She suggested that strangers lie three times on average in the first 10 minutes of meeting someone new. So if you got here this morning a bit early and had a chat with someone that you've not met before, you're now desperately trying to figure out the three lies. And you know what? They're trying to do the same for you as well and work out the lies there. She also said in the average marriage, one in ten things communicated are untrue. (laughs) And if you extend it to unmarried relationships, it goes up to one in three. Now, these are average statistical things. They're not saying universally this applies all the time to everybody. But this is what her research showed. So in this kind of world where lies are flying around so commonly, we need to hear what verse 25 says, don't we? This is what we're called to. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour. For we are members of one another. I think there's a call we need to take seriously. I think it goes beyond the real big things. I think we probably already are aware of those moments that it's a big outright moment. I could say something true or false. I think there's that at least that sense of, yeah, I think God wants me to say the true thing, not the false thing most of the time. But when we talk about those 200 lies or those three lies in 10 minutes or those things in the marriages or whatever it may be. They're not all the real big brash in your face 
false statement. A lot of the time, it's littler things. It's embellishments. It's twists to the truth to create a slightly different impression to what's real. Why do those things happen? Why, why do people do that? Well, sometimes it's to make ourselves seem a little bit better. We're telling a story, and at the moment that we might not look so good in the story, we just omit a detail, or we slightly tweak how things went. Or if we're presenting uh, our point of view, we might just kind of falsely represent what the opposing view is, so that we seem cleverer or more right. We, we might want to put ourselves across as looking good. We might flatter people. We, we might want to be well thought of and receive favourably. So we'll say things to someone that aren't necessarily true. We just want them to think, oh, they're nice, they're praising me. Maybe we lie to avoid difficult conversations because we're afraid of saying what's true. So we just fob people off with falsehood. There's all sorts of things. But as people in Christ, why do we need to make ourselves look better? We already have all the approval in Christ. Why do we need to flatter? Why do we need to have fear of other people? We have Christ. And so we're called to speak the truth. And speaking the truth, let me just say this, because when we talk about this, people sometimes think it's about being tactless, and it's about going up to people and being like, yeah, I'm going to tell you the truth. You're ugly, you are. It's not about being tactless. It's not about oversharing, necessarily. Silence, discretion can be really valuable things at times. But it's about moving away from falsehood and moving towards truth. George Orwell said, in a time of deceit... Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And so that's one example we've got here in these verses. One of the many that we wrote down where we're called away from one thing and into something distinctive. Let's do a second one. Let's do anger, right? Anyone ever get angry? I get angry. Confession time. I got angry yesterday morning because we were meant to have someone come to our house to do some work who told us they'd be there at a time and then said they'd be there like half an hour later, and then an hour and a half later, they weren't there. And I was just over that time. It's like the temperature inside was increasing gradually, and my fumingness was getting more and more and more. Anger, right? (laughs) That's not righteous anger. That's not good anger. That was anger at myself getting inconvenienced, and it was souring me to what was going on. I wasn't enjoying myself. I wasn't relating well to other people at that moment. That's something I needed to put off. It wasn't a good thing. But you know what? I think I'm not the only one who struggles with anger. And I, the reason I know that is I've been on social media. And if you've ever spent time scrolling Twitter or Instagram or something like that, you'll basically find it's a mix of memes and rage, and the two things kind of intermingle together. There's an undercurrent where people seem angry about whatever's going on, and they're not afraid to express it. And sometimes I'm scrolling and I'm reading this kind of torrent of anger, and I'm thinking, you you know what, I, I get it, you're right about the thing that you're angry about, it still doesn't feel healthy. Sometimes anger, what it's about, the thing that you're angry about, is actually a bad thing. Jackie Hill Perry said, there is a lot to be angry about. Injustice in various forms, the disregard of humanity, of heaven, of love, of the reigning Lord, and a truth that sets us free. I read that, and I think, what was I doing getting angry about this workman not turning up on time? That's a better thing to be angry about, right? 
Well, verse 26, I think that's the most surprising verse in the whole passage, because I would have thought that he would have said, yeah, don't be angry. Stop being angry. But what does he say at the start of the verse? Be angry. He says, be angry. There exists a right anger. God has a right anger. In fact, if you're not angry at all about injustice in the world, about poverty in the world, about the stuff that Tim was talking about in Ukraine, you hear that and there's not a little undercurrent of anger about it, I'd suggest maybe you're not paying attention. It says, be angry, but he says, be angry and do not sin. And I think this really challenged me because being angry and not sinning Firstly, it's don't get angry about the stupid, trivial stuff that I sometimes get angry about. But I think there's more to it than that. It's not, saying, it's not only saying don't have anger about unrighteous things. Actually, even righteous anger can become unrighteous if it leads us to sin. Yeah? You can become angry about something that is a bad thing, but it can consume you, it can be unhelpful to you, it can cause you to do things that are not godly. So that quote from Jackie Hill Perry continues, and she says, at the point where perpetual rage describes you or us, that is when something needs to be adjusted. And we need to guard what we're watching, listening to, having continual conversations around. Are they stirring us up to love and good works, or just to rage, just to anger, just to clench fists and unrestrained anxiety. Do you know what it's like to get in that rabbit hole of something that might be a righteous cause, but you just go so deep it starts to consume you in a not good way? There's a kind of anger that we can hold that messes everything up. And either it can be expressed through like hot outbursts where we uh, express it publicly, or we hold it deepest, kind of a cold resentment and bitterness. Both are anger, and it's described as giving the devil... A foothold. So there's a solution that's suggested in the passage. I think it's really, really helpful. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. This was a decision that Emma and I made when we first got married, that if ever there's a thing, if ever there's an argument, a resentment, anger, whatever it may be, we're not going to go to sleep on the problem. We're going to get it dealt with that day, we're going to get everything reconciled and sorted, and we're not letting the sun go down on our anger. That served us really, really well. I'd suggest you do that. Now, if you're in a marriage, it's easy to do in that way. I'd suggest doing it no matter what the anger is or who it's with. And sometimes the way you don't let the sun go down on your anger is you have a conversation with the other person, and you get stuff worked out quickly. And sometimes that's just not possible Still, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Sometimes what it takes is a nice long prayer walk where you're pouring it all out to God and you're getting your heart right again. You're getting centred and right and in a healthy spiritual place. Do it that same day because if you sleep on it and let it linger, it does something to you and changes you into a cynical, callous and angrier person. And then thirdly, uh, we'll jump into chapter 5. And verse 3, it's all about sexual purity. I don't think I need to persuade you that sex is a big issue today. And actually, the recent few years, it's been interesting because a lot has been brought to light with Me Too and other things in the news that's revealed stuff that's been going on for a long time. And I think we can see clearly that sex is both a very good thing 
and a very dangerous thing. And this is what the Bible has always taught. The Bible has seen that sex can be both a great blessing, but something destructive and harmful when misused. And so it's really powerful to look at what the Bible says. And into a culture, first century culture, every bit as sexualized as ours, he writes, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. That is such a, a radical and beautiful thing to write. And if we mull on that and reflect on that, I think that would be a challenging thing. When it talks about sexual immorality, it's got the basis of the whole biblical picture on sex, that the context that God created sex as a gift for is marriage. The two go together in the Bible. When we say marriage, it's lifelong committed union between one man and one woman. That's what the Bible sets as the context for sex. So anything outside of that would be what's considered sexual immorality. So that would include things like Living with someone or being in a sexual relationship with someone outside of marriage, if you're a person who's unmarried. If you're a person who is married, it would include sexual activity with somebody other than your spouse. It would include same-sex sexual activity. It would include one-night stands. It would include friends with benefits or hookup culture. It would include being in a relationship that uh, you're pushing the boundaries. Of a if your basic question is, how far can we go? Then it's like you're saying, we kind of want to do sexual immorality. How much can we get away with? Isn't it a better question? How can we live our relationship out in a way that honours Jesus? It's a much better starting point. It would also include pornography, which is an absolutely massive one in our day because it's endemic. I was on the website Covenant Eyes a couple of weeks ago, just looking at some statistics around it. Covenant Eyes is a great ministry for people who struggle with pornography addiction. And they had stats from Barna that said, on average, 64% of men and 30% of women view pornography on a regular basis. Those numbers are huge. They said the average age at which someone is first exposed to it is 12. Crazy. And what we need to realise about pornography is how harmful it can be. Because I think sometimes people have this attitude towards it. It doesn't really hurt anyone, does it? It's no big deal if it's just, if it's just someone alone in a room with a screen and no one's hurt by it. Firstly, let me just say that's a really, really naive view of how the whole industry works and the level of abuse that goes on there. But also, have you thought about what it does to your soul? Have you thought about what it does to your relationship with God? Have you thought about what it does to your relationships with other people? It trains you to dehumanise and objectify people. And also, let me just say this, it's become part of so many TV shows nowadays. It's become a normalised thing. People are like, hey, have you watched this series? And you start watching a... That's pornography, isn't it? No, 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 no. It's, it's not pornography. It's different. It's a, it's a TV series. It's just a TV series with people with no clothes on and having sex with each other. It's not pornography. It's a different thing, right? <laughs> I'm not sure the distinction actually holds up, you know. But it's, it seems a much easier way because it comes under the radar. You think I'm doing something totally different. So what should we do? How do we combat this? I think there are two, two ways that we attack this if we want to put off sexual immorality. One of them's practical, and the second is a heart thing. Practically, 
You ask the question, what can I do to put a barrier between me and doing whatever the thing might be? Now, that could include all sorts of things. It could include ending a relationship. It could include moving out of a home. It could include getting married to somebody. It could include uh, putting software on your devices to keep you accountable. A year or two ago, I pretty much stopped watching television outright, and there are numbers of reasons for it, but one of them is just the bombardment of unhelpful stuff that keeps coming up. Like, this isn't a good thing to keep exposing myself to. I'm just going to pivot to reading as my way of relaxing. I'm not saying you need to do the same things I do, but what are the things that are unhelpful? Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Now, I think he was using hyperbole, but I do think he was making a point. What are the things that are causing you to sin? How do you get rid of them? But I think there's a second part to it as well, and that's in your heart. And one of my favorite stories that I tell over and over again is the story of the Greek mythology, and uh, is the island of the sirens. The sirens were these um, kind of alluring, kind of devil people who had this song that made sailors want to turn off course and go and shipwreck themselves. And they represented evil and sin and lust and temptation and all that sort of thing. And most sailors who went past, that was the end. They shipwrecked their lives and were devoured. But one guy called Jason, he had a different plan. And he invited onto his ship Orpheus. And Orpheus was the best musician in the whole land. And he said, whenever the sirens sing their song, and whenever I want to go off course, Orpheus, would you sing a sweeter song? And so Orpheus did. And he sang a song that drowned out the music of the sirens. And it captivated Jason's heart in a way that this alluring, sinful, tempting sound never could. Well, we have the presence of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have something better. We have the sweeter song. And as we lean into the presence of God, and as we develop our walk with him, our hearts are changed. Our desires change. He changes us from the inside out. And if we want to be free, yes, do the practical stuff. But on its own, without a heart change, it won't work. So do both, but lean in to Jesus. You know, in some ways, this preach today is a difficult message to hear. And if I'm really honest with you, it's a pretty difficult message to preach as well. And that's because it touches on stuff. It touches on real stuff that's going on, as I'm sure it's going on in the lives of people in here. Stuff that's personal to us, this stuff addresses. I want to say this as we're coming to the end. You've got to understand the heart of Jesus in this. You've got to understand what he's all about. There's a story where a woman's brought to him who's been caught committing adultery. Now, it doesn't say why the man's not also brought, but that probably shows something of the motives of the people doing it. But they said to Jesus, right, the law says because of what she's done, we can stone her to death. Do you agree, Jesus? And he's like, well, yeah, all right, go on then, stone her to death, but with one condition. I want the person who's never sinned to throw the first stone. And then there's like this awkward moment. Is anyone going to pick up a stone? And none of them do. They shuffle off. The old ones shuffle off first. The younger ones shuffle off as well. Until there's only Jesus and the woman left. And he says, what? None of them condemn you. Well, you know what? I don't condemn you either. You've got to understand the heart of Jesus. When we're talking about this, we're not talking about something to beat people over the head with. 
We're not talking about condemnation. We're talking about grace. The way of Jesus is the way of flourishing and blessing. It's the absolute best. And that's why he's calling us to walk it. Not to make us feel bad about the past, but to lead us into a blessed future. And then Jesus said to that woman, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I remember after being a Christian about nine months, nothing in my life had changed. Pretty much nothing. Out of everything in this whole passage, I think the only thing that I noticed any changing at all is I was now swearing a little bit less than I used to. And that was it. Nine months of sanctification came down to that. And I was on a bus journey on on my way to the summer festival. I was going to get baptised there. And I thought I heard God speaking to me. And he was just like, Tom, you've been following me for nine months and nothing's changed. Like, do you want to follow me for real? So yeah, I do. I want to follow you for real. And I made a decision in that moment that I'm going to follow the way of Jesus. That was a big moment for me. Jay, would you just start playing guitar? I wonder if this morning might be a big moment for some of us here. It's a moment of choice. It's a moment to say, yes, there is a call to put some stuff off and to put some stuff on and to walk in the way of Christ. And as you make that choice, you know what you'll receive? Grace upon grace upon grace. This is not about shame. It's not at all about shame. It is about freedom. It is about stepping into the life that he's calling you to with the help of his spirit.